Welcome back to the Everything That Came Before Grace podcast. I'm Bill C. We jump ahead now to August 2011, and Benjamin is sitting out front on his old wicker chair again as he recounts the last year. He feels like he's drifting, and he keeps trying to keep up with Sophia, who's now almost a teenager. As Sophia withdraws and becomes more guarded, Benjamin doesn't know what to do with himself, and he feels increasingly inadequate as a parent. Time keeps marching on, and Cassandra keeps recommending he go on meds, but he chooses to white-knuckle it. Meanwhile, Benjamin keeps hooking up with Angela, even though he feels like he's illogically cheating on Anna by doing so. So let's take a listen. It's Chapter 20, Drifting Blues. Part 3, Troubled Waters, Chapter 20, Drifting Blues, Early August, 2011. I'm out front on my old wicker chair again. This chair has seen better days. Its white matte exterior has faded to dirty gray, and all my nervous fidgeting has frayed its woven arms. The cushion is torn, so the stuffing is almost gone. I just can't bring myself to throw it out. It's like an old friend who's got me through so much. With the dogs at my feet, John Lee Hooker's drifting blues wafts through the still, balmy summer air. Sophie's at a sleepover, so it's just me tonight. It's been a rough year. I haven't felt like writing much. Even when I try and just do some journaling for Cassandra, it bums me out reading it back, so why bother? Sophia is changing. Her voice isn't as chirpy and wondrous. I can tell she's starting to temper herself around me. When I ask her how her day was, her answers are increasingly clipped and vague. She doesn't volunteer anything unless I ask her something directly. I know I'm not getting the whole story. I try not to show my disappointment when she tells me she's too busy to do stuff like we used to, but it's hard. I don't know what to do with myself. She just got her first period. She's not even 13. I thought I had another year. She didn't say it, but there was that moment where she had this look like, I want my mom. It was crushing. Her body is taking shape, and it's freaking me out. Her once long blonde hair is cut to her shoulders, perfectly framing her face, and the hint of baby fat has fallen away, and the features of her face have sharpened. Her awkward and gangly gait has morphed into a cool and measured air. She came out of the bathroom the other night with her hair dyed red. Then she asked if she could get a stud in her nose. 
and it took everything I had not to sound like every buttoned-up old fossil I used to make fun of. An old college buddy is the station manager at KCSN, and he offered me a late-night radio show. Kind of a dream gig. I had to turn it down because I have no one to watch Sophia, and even if I did, I can't justify being away from her. It's a paradox. I resent depriving myself of this great opportunity, but guilty for losing sight of making Sophia my number one priority. I went to another dinner party at Anna and Keith's last week. I spent the night in the kitchen watching Anna float around, playing host, looking so goddamn gorgeous, and showing no sign how awkward it is with me there. I can't get over how she plays it so cool. Keith gets up for more wine, and Anna turns to me and reminds me about the time we hosted a big combination costume and hide-and-go-seek party at Greystone Mansion. And for an instant, she's looking at me and talking to me like she used to. But it doesn't last. Keith comes back, and he launches into a story about Anna being too scared to skydive on their honeymoon. In lawyer talk, that's called a redirect. Maybe Sarah and Cassandra are right. Maybe Anna shouldn't have told me she still has feelings for me. Maybe that old couple on the bench wasn't a sign but a curse. Maybe God has a sick sense of humor. Because every time you're ready to give up, you get a fucking sign to hang in there and keep torturing yourself. It's like being at a casino. Right when you decide to get up and leave with just a shred of dignity left, on your way out, you drop your last dollar in the slot machine by the exit, and it hits. So you head back in for more, thinking it's a sign, but by the time you finally crawl out of there, you've lost your shirt, your car, your house, and your dignity. Cassandra keeps asking me about going on some meds. I keep resisting and trying to get by just by white-knuckling it. She suggested I try writing letters to all the people I need closure from. Not to send or anything, just to get the feelings out. My mom, my dad, my grandparents, Anna, Keith. But it takes so much out of me to dig down and get to those feelings. That's the dichotomy of therapy. People ask me how it's going, and I'm like, it's painful as fuck getting pulled down into that shit. And you wade into these deep, dark, troubled waters, and all you want to do is swim back to shore where it feels safe. Then you remember how painful it was there, too, so you push off from shore again because it hurts too much not to. There's never going to be any closure with my grandparents. I'll never forgive them for what they did to my mom and for lying to me about it. My dad? Fuck that guy. He doesn't want me. He never did. And Keith? Whatever. Let him think we're cool now. He needs that. And Anna? If I wasn't such a glutton for punishment, I'd keep my distance. I just can't get it out of my head we're supposed to be together. I guess that's pure folly, but I can't see anything else right now. My mom's a different story. I've written her tons of letters of gratitude for the songs she played me, the movies she turned me on to, how she taught me to find solace through the arts, for giving me the writer's muse. Cassandra tells me to just remember the good stuff and let go of all the heartbreak, but I'm just not there yet. I still get angry remembering the time she disappeared. 
the way she tell me all those stories about her madcap adventures, never understanding I was home, waiting for her, and needing her around. It's hard remembering all those times I wish I was free of her, because ever since she's been gone, the survival guilt is killing me. It's later now, and the courtyard is bustling. I'm watching my neighbors come and go, waiting for something to inspire a line. Sweet old Claudia from across the courtyard, heading out to walk her collie. The very pretty Dahlia with the Trader Joe's bag on her shoulder coming home. She always gives me a sheepish smile and a wave. And there's my next-door neighbor Anthony out to check his mail. The guy is an even bigger music freak than me. He'll show you he's on the cover of the Beach Boys in Concert album. I quit trying to one-up him on shows I've seen after I very proudly told him I saw Nirvana open for Sonic Youth at the Hollywood Palladium. He paused and informed me he was at the legendary Tammy show with the Rolling Stones, Beach Boys, Marvin Gaye, Chuck Berry and the Supremes. Mic drop. Anthony moved in right after Catherine died, so he's seen a lot around here. He keeps his distance and doesn't pry, but I'll always be grateful for the mixtape he made me after he saw me out here one night and I told him I didn't know if I could go on. A lot of the songs that ended up on that Songs That Save mixtape are from him. I've got some incredible groove weed if you want to come over, he calls out. I've got some early sunhouse that'll blow your fucking mind, man. I'm good, I say. Heard you playing the first Flying Burrito Brothers record last night. Yeah, man. You should have seen them at the Palomino when they first started out, he says. Same weekend I saw Hendrix. I shake my head. I told myself I wouldn't, but I hooked up with Angela a few more times. Angela's cool and pretty and doesn't pressure me to put a label on what we're doing. What's crazy is it feels like I'm cheating on Anna or like I'm betraying this absurd martyr narrative I've been crafting about not needing anyone. I feel like shit letting it go on like this. I'm just so lonely and desperate for affection. Fuck me. I can't even get martyrdom right.